Slowly but surely, the votes in Afghanistan's third general election are being counted. It's an arduous business. Many ballot boxes were transported by donkey to and from distant settlements. Great care was and has been taken to maintain security during the voting, the transporting, and now the counting. So far, only partial results have been revealed, accounting for roughly 10% of the vote in 26 of Afghanistan's 34 provinces. These 500,000 votes revealed that two candidates were initially way ahead of the field. Former Foreign Minister Abdullah, Abdullah had 41.9% or 212,000 votes, while former Finance Minister Ashraf Ghani had 38% or 191,000 votes. Former Foreign Minister Zalmay Rasul trailed with 10% or 50,000 votes. So it looks like the election will be a two-man race, but there's a lot of counting and complaining yet to be finalised. A provisional final vote is due to be announced next Thursday, April the 24th. A spokesman for the Complaints Committee of Afghanistan's Independent Elections Commission has revealed that already 1,900 complaints of fraud have been filed and that 870 of these are serious enough to potentially affect the result. All complaints will have been examined before the final election result is announced in the middle of May. And if, as seems quite possible, no candidate wins 50% plus one of the total vote, then a runoff election between the two top candidates will have to be conducted in every nook and corner of the country. So the arduous process is far from over. This being so, I thought I would take another look at one generally overlooked aspect of this election – the man who became the first elected president of Afghanistan way back in June 2002 is still in power and is he who will hand over power to whoever emerges as the second president in this current election. He is, of course, President Hamid Karzai. In 2002, few anticipated that he would stay in power for 12 years. There were two important conditions which were obviously missing as the Afghan lawyer Jirga, or Grand Council, finally got down to business in Kabul in June 2002. For Afghans, the lawyer Jirga is a traditional consultative mechanism. It is one of several such institutions in Asia whose long history proves that simplistic assertions that democracy is not a nation value are simply not true. For centuries, tribal elders from all parts of the country, representatives of some or all of the various ethnic groups, have come together to diminish differences or settle disputes or to approve constitutions. Lawyer jurgers may have been called at the emirs or the king's bidding, or they may have been called to decide who should be the national leader. A delightful story is told of a Pashtun lawyer Jirga that met way back in 1747 in the southern city of Kandahar to elect an emir. For nine days there was ardent debate but no conclusion. Finally, so the story goes, the lawyer Jirga turned to the one man who had never spoken a single word throughout the discussion and then made him the king. 
He was Ahmad Shah Durrani, the man usually credited with the initial development of Afghanistan in modern times and the founder of the monarchical dynasty which ruled until King Zahir Shah was deposed by a coup carried out by his cousin, Muhammad Daud, in July 1973. At the time of that coup, Zahir Shah was in Italy having medical treatment for his eyes. He then stayed on in exile in Rome for the next 29 years before returning in March 2002, just in time for the lawyer Jirga, which he had long advocated as the best way out of Afghanistan's political troubles. This brings us to the first condition that was missing from the Afghan scene as the lawyer Jirga met in 2002, a widely recognised distinction between a head of state and a head of government. Frequently, though not always in Asia, a head of state is merely a figurehead, while the head of government usually wields governmental or administrative power. At the Conference on the Future of Afghanistan, which had been held in the former German capital city of Bonn late in 2001, Hamid Karzai had been appointed head of the interim Afghan government, which was to rule for the next six months until a transitional government was appointed by a lawyer Jirga. It was decided in Bonn that the transitional government was to be in power for 18 months before national elections would be held. Given this schedule, a sensible arrangement for the lawyer Joker to approve would have been to make Zahir Shah the transitional head of state while Hamid Karzai remained head of government. That may have seemed sensible from the outside looking in, but evidently not many Afghans saw it that way. For a start, such an arrangement would have left the government in the hands of two Pashtuns, members of the main 40% Afghan minority. That would not have sat well with the Tajiks of the Northern Alliance, who, with the help of American air power plus American and allied special forces, had played a key role in sweeping away the Taliban tyranny in 2001. These Tajiks had a central role in the interim government. They did not intend to surrender power to a Pashtun-dominated transitional government. Seen from the outside, a sensible arrangement would have been to first reinstate the 1964 constitution under which Afghanistan was both a monarchy and a parliamentary democracy with a prime minister as head of government. With the 1964 constitution in place, the parliament, the key office holders and finally the head of government could have been appointed. In reality, the lawyer Jirga went about things in the reverse order. The first item of business was choosing a chairman for the assembly and then choosing a head of state. The distinction between head of state and head of government was simply not made. They were assumed to be the same thing. It is difficult to see this as anything else than a consequence of the state of civil war and near anarchy that had existed in Afghanistan since the Soviet invasion in 1979, which followed the communist coup against Dowd in 1976. For over a quarter of a century since 1976, constitutional niceties had not held sway. The raw politics of power were in charge. Despite a surface mirage of unity under the Taliban, Afghanistan in truth ceased to exist as a unified entity. In 2002, it was beginning to become a unified entity all over again. Making a distinction between head of state and head of government evidently seemed a meaningless complexity to many Afghans.
Additionally, the pursuit of power was seen more than ever in ethnic terms. The Pashtuns fear Tajik dominance. The Tajiks who dominated the Northern Alliance fear the Pashtuns trying to get back their old dominance in the Afghan polity. A crucial mistake was that the lawyer Jirga was first called upon to decide who would hold ultimate power rather than making that decision last. Against this background, when the former King Zahir Shah made it clear in an interview with the BBC that he would serve in any way the lawyer Jirga decided, it was all too easy for the offer to be taken in the wrong way. The fact that Zahir Shah made it plain once again in the same interview that he was not interested in a revival of the monarchy made it seem as if he was running for executive office. The Tajiks particularly saw his offer as a Pashtun power play. At 88 years of age, Zahir Shah obviously did not have the physical capability to be the chief executive himself. So it was assumed that the younger members of the Pashtun elite would really be in charge using the system for their ethnic advantage. Conversely, the surge of support in the lawyer Jirga for the former king was in part due to Pashtun fears as to where Hamid Karzai's coalition with the Tajiks and other northern minorities might lead. Throughout the toing and froing, the fact that there is useful distinction to be made between heads of state and heads of government was completely lost to view. Afghanistan had known nothing but raw struggles for power for 26 years. It was assumed that another raw struggle for power was at hand. Which brings me to the second aspect that was missing as the lawyer Jirga got down to business, a diplomatic degree of American restraint. Great powers in a dominant position should avoid over-asserting their dominance. The pursuit of a stooge in Saigon lay at the heart of the U.S. political failure in Vietnam. When Hamid Karzai emerged as a new leader of post-Taliban Afghanistan at the Bonn Conference, it was widely assumed that he was America's preference. Afghans, with their acute feel for the nuances of power, did not need to be reminded that this was so. But in Kabul, during the lawyer Jirga, they were. The delegates to the lawyer Jirga needed to feel that they were in charge, that Afghans were again guiding the nation. Undoubtedly, the Americans must have had some prior discussions with Hamid Karzai and other Afghan leaders about how the transitional government should be formed. Whether or not there was such a backroom deal as the lawyer Jirga convened, it was definitely a moment for American diplomats to hang back and not be seen pushing things along. The U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan was blameless. He wasn't seen all week. But in this regard, President George W. Bush's special envoy to Afghanistan blundered, even though he himself was an American Afghan, Zalmay Khalilazad. First, he rushed around to see Zahir Shah, once there seemed to be a surge of support for the former king, in order to make sure that he was not actually running for office. Second, Khalilizad then held a press conference to announce that Zahir Shah wanted no role in the new transitional government and would be saying so in a statement. Third, Khalilizad still attended the press conference roughly three hours later at which Zahir Shah read out a statement affirming support for Karzai who was sitting next to him and repeating what Khalilizad had already announced he would be saying. 
Fourth, Khalil Zad visited the huge German-provided tent in which the lawyer Jurga was being held and was seen actively lobbying delegates to support Karzai. Fifth, Khalil Zad appeared several times on the 24-hour news circuit to deny what by then seemed undeniable, that he had been trying to influence both the lawyer Jurga and Zahir Shah. The more he denied this, the more he indirectly emphasised his own questionable tactics. The then Secretary of State, Colin Powell, felt obliged to stress that the American role was limited to creating conditions for Afghans, quote, to find their way into the future in accordance with their traditions and their processes, unquote. So was Khalil Zad behaving according to his Afghan instincts? Or was he the immigrant trying to assert his newfound Americanness? Or was he just in the grip of an assertive ego? Whatever it was, it seemed particularly maladroit in a country like Afghanistan with its proven track record of resisting intervention by outsiders. As one lawyer Jurga delegate succinctly put it, quote, we don't need anyone to decide for us. We have had enough foreign interference in our country, unquote. Two haunting questions remain. Was the mishandling of the lawyer Jurga a reason for the irritatingly anti-American tone of President Karzai's subsequent governance? But has that consistently anti-American tone been a major reason why Karzai has stayed in power for 12 years? Karzai evidently intends to stay in touch. He is reportedly building a house for himself in the grounds of the presidential palace. <laughs>